So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want to define terms. I want to tell you what tongues is, and I want to tell you what prophecy is, and we'll get started. So tongues, if you remember, I said it was a mysterious form of prayer spoken by the Spirit in an angelic or foreign tongue through a follower of Jesus. It's primarily a gift for the individual who's speaking, unless there is an interpretation for the gathering of his people. So that's tongues. Now here's prophecy. Prophecy is the ability to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. It's how God spontaneously uses his voice through his people to build up his church. And here's an important part. It's always for the purpose of relationship, and it never contradicts or supersedes Scripture. And I want you to know anything you find insightful or interesting, it was not me. I've learned a ton about prophecy from men who have gone before me and are friends of mine. I have no original ideas, and so don't even for a minute think that I'm intelligent, okay? Got that out of the way. Done. And it's important for us when we enter into this discussion and begin to understand how the Spirit works, what Paul said at the beginning. And remember, we covered that for a while. In verse 1, he said, pursue love. He said, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. So we have to remember that our desire and pursuit of anything that the Spirit does has to first come from a pursuit of love. And we cultivate that through intimacy, if you remember. And in that pursuit of love, what it will do is it'll keep us from overvaluing the gifts and not the giver. It'll keep us from using the gifts for our own self-assurance or gain or pride. It'll help us to continue to give them away like they're supposed to. And it's because what Paul wants the gifts to always do is build up the church. And what I, I want you to know is prophecy is another one of those gifts that when put in the hands of the church, unfortunately, in a lot of different contexts has gone horribly wrong, uh, really awkward, or just honestly really confusing. And so what a lot of church streams has done is just said, let's just not worry about it and we'll leave it on the sidelines or we'll just reject it. And we can't do either of those things. And we can't do that because of what he says after that first part of that verse. So he says, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he says this, especially that you prophesy. Especially that you prophesy. So what we have to see here is the force of that language means Paul wanted everyone in the church to do it. He said, actually, if you're gonna express the spirit in any way, when you gather, I want you to prophesy. It was so important to him that he prioritized it over every other gift, and he seems to imply that it should be happening. Out of all the things that the Holy Spirit does, he says, this is the thing that I want you to do. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want prophecy? And I think the question, or the answer to most is no. We want really, really good sermons that wreck us, make us laugh, and then feel kind of bad for a week before we get what he said. We want that, right? We want worship that gives us goosebumps and helps us have an emotional experience and oh my gosh, that was amazing so we can remember that. And we'd love less awkward small groups or maybe more awkward where we cry more, share more life and good things happen, right? But why don't we want prophecy? I think it comes from a few different places. I wanna answer that. So I think the lack of desire for prophecy comes from a few different places. Some of you in the room um, might find that you're in one of these camps. So the first is just ignorance. And that doesn't mean you're dumb, it just means you don't know, right? 
You just literally, you think prophecy and you're like, is he talking about like Harry Potter, Professor Trelawney? Remember when she goes in that trance and talks about the boy who lived? Remember like the chosen one? Some of you, others of you, your parents didn't let you read it. It's okay. Um, It's not that, but when you hear that, you're like, okay, is it a gypsy? Is it a crazy guy in the desert? I don't even know what that is. And so tonight for you, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to teach you. And so your best posture to have when we walk into this is just to learn to learn what would God teach me. The second group I think is in here is that you think about the idea that God would talk to us sounds nice, but you think that actually belongs in a fairy tale. Like, okay, that's great, but I really don't think that that's something that can happen. Um, Maybe not even just skeptically, but honestly, you're like, I don't think that's for me and I don't think he does that. It's a little too out there. And for those of you who think that way, I want you to know that you've probably staked your life on something far more miraculous. If you have a hard time accepting prophecy, but you would say you follow Jesus, then I want you to know that your decision to follow Jesus is far more miraculous because you are saying that you believe that a carpenter turned rabbi died 2,000 years ago and then three days later was back from the dead. And that is a far greater miracle than God choosing to speak to his people, isn't it? So I want you to be encouraged. You actually might be much farther along in your ability to believe things that sound extraordinary than you think. And then the the third camp is those of you who, yeah, you know a lot about prophecy because it's wounded you. You've been in different contexts, maybe church camps, where people have said things to you or over you or, or you've just seen it used in a way that's actually quite abusive and wounding. And so you'd actually want nothing to do with it. And Our God is not a God who breaks people and hurts them. He restores them and heals them. And so tonight, I believe God wants to heal you of the experiences you've had and show you what he really wants prophecy to look like. And we have to wade into the waters of Scripture because God wants you to live a naturally supernatural life, and he wants you to read what you read in the Bible and believe that you can live it out, even in 2019, right where you're at. He wants us to live Holy Spirit-empowered lives. So let's remember context. So Paul, he's talking to a church where everybody had something to give to the gathering. Remember, it was like open mic night on the hill. I don't know what bar does karaoke because that's not my thing. You'd all leave if I started singing. Um, But it was everybody had something to say. They wanted to prophesy. They wanted to speak in tongues. It was nuts. And a lot of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit did happened in a gathering like this. And I believe that for us, we should think about, okay, by the end of this thing, where should I prophesy and and how should I do it? It can happen in this gathering. I think you'll absolutely walk away going, I believe that I can operate and express the Holy Spirit gift of prophecy in a large group like this, but then also in your small groups, in your connection groups, and in your individual relationships. That's where you should look to begin to practice this by the end of the night. And so we're going to use chapter 14 to answer three questions. Here's our three questions. What is prophecy? Number one. Number two, what does it do? So number one, what is prophecy? Number two, what does it do? And then lastly, number three, how do we do it? How do we prophesy? How do we become a church that does what Paul seems to prioritize when the church gathers? So let's start right with that first question. What is prophecy? Here's what it is. All prophecy is simply how God uses his voice. Prophecy is how God speaks. 
And it's how he speaks to do three things, reveal himself, communicate with his people, and deepen relationship. Okay, so prophecy is how God uses his voice to reveal himself, communicate with his people, and deepen relationships. See, prophecy is always about intimacy and relationship at its core. At its core, it's God pursuing us and doing it through this way. And prophecy is not just information that we put in our heads, it's revelation that explodes in our hearts, okay? It's not just like, that's a neat fact, it's something that absolutely strengthens you at the core of who you are. So it's not just information in your head, but revelation in your heart. And actually, when you begin to open the pages of your Bible, you'll find two different kinds of prophecy that I want to kind of unpack for us. Two different kinds of prophecy that exist in the Old Testament and New Testament. And the major difference between the two is how to, filter, uh, how to filter what you hear and how the people listening to the prophecy would have heard it. Okay, I'm going to unpack that. So, Old Testament prophecy is authoritative. Okay, Old Testament prophecy, it's authoritative, and I'm going to unpack that. New Testament prophecy, it's inspired. You guys tracking with me? Yeah? No? No one said anything. Like four girls were like, uh-huh, I'm here. Yes. Okay. Old Testament prophecy, it's authoritative. New Testament prophecy, it's inspirational. So what do I mean? So when you begin to flip through the pages of the Old Testament, you'll read books like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, Jonah, and you'll meet guys like Moses, Elijah. All of them were prophets. All of them were prophets, and the Spirit of God would come on them for a time, not permanently, and that's important, for a time, and they would speak the words of God as they heard them from God himself. So that's the interesting thing about an Old Testament prophet, is all of them were authoritative mouthpieces for God himself. All of them would have, almost all of them actually had face-to-face encounters with God, we're told you need to go say this and in a thus saith the Lord way would proclaim it to the people around them. There's this authoritative sense that it's not just nice things they're thinking, it's words God himself is speaking and he's just using these men to do it for them. And it's authoritative. Thus saith the Lord, God himself said this. It was to a specific people for a specific reason with words directly from the Lord. And you'll notice that the Spirit would only be on these men for a certain amount of time, typically as long as they needed to speak these things out or write them down, and then the Spirit would leave them. But then it begins to change. So the Old Testament seems to stay that way. The Spirit doesn't really stay on anyone for long, and only certain people get these words from God, but then Jesus shows up. And see, here's the other interesting thing about Old Testament prophecy. It was always in some way pointing to Jesus. So then when the things, the prophecies were about, the the man himself shows up, we meet the ultimate prophet. Because everything Jesus did and everything he said revealed God, pursued relationship, and brought about deeper intimacy. Nothing more prophetic than his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. God revealing himself, who he really is, his true nature, is seen in how he dies and then how he comes back to life. The ultimate gateway to relationship with God is through Jesus. And so he comes, reveals himself, and then says, I'm not done yet. I'm sending one to help you. And he's going to do that by empowering his church, which then would bring us to Acts chapter 2. 
So I mentioned the story last week. Many of you who have grown up in church have heard it. So Acts chapter 2, every, uh, a small crowd of these Jesus followers, they're in this upper room. Uh, they're praying, waiting for God to show up. These things that they would say, tongues that look like fire, descend on these people. They start speaking in tongues, and then they begin to prophesy. And Peter stands up to this crowd who's like, you must be drunk. And he's like, no, it's only nine in the morning, which doesn't stop a lot of people. But um, he's like, no, 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 here's what happens. And what has happened is a prophecy from long ago in the book of Joel has been fulfilled. Listen to this prophecy. From Joel chapter two, verses 28 and 29. God said, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. See, two things have changed about prophecy on the day of Pentecost. First, it's no longer authoritative. It's just inspired. So it's not like, thus saith the Lord. You have to do it, he says. Here it is. It's just inspired by God. And these specific times of filling have become constant states of dwelling. Okay, what do I mean? So the Spirit would just specifically come on these men for certain times so they would prophesy. But what seems to have happened here in Acts chapter 2 is now the Spirit stays constantly on his people and empowers them to live. And it's not just these certain men who are supposed to be God's mouthpieces. It's all people, men, women, anyone Young men, old men, everyone now who puts their faith in Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Anyone now can be an inspired mouthpiece and can prophesy. So what is New Testament prophecy then? How do we begin to let it take shape? Here's a helpful definition from a theologian, Wayne Grudem. He says, it's telling someone something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So now, instead of these intense moments where God meets these prophets, speaks to them face to face, he just begins to now spontaneously, through the Holy Spirit, bring things to people's minds. And I'll give you examples in a second. So I just want to review the differences. It's something I really want to get clear because I think it's lacking in the church, and I think we need to start doing it. Okay, so Old Testament prophets, face-to-face encounters with clear mandates to speak on God's authority. Now, New Testament prophets, anybody, all of you who know Jesus, can prophesy. He's not restricting it. All of us can now prophesy, but he does it through these spontaneous thoughts, ideas, feelings, impressions, all through the Holy Spirit. He gives them to us, not just for specific people, but all people. And you're like, okay, that sounds like no wonder things get messy. And you're right, right? Because we're all fallen. We make mistakes. There's human emotion, skepticism, and mixed motives in everything we do, which is why then Corinthians is not the only book that talks about prophecy. You will find Paul instruct the church on prophecy in Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Peter, Jude, and even Revelation. That's how many books he unpacks what it looks like to prophesy, and we're just going to stay in this one. So it begins to beg the question, if that's what it is, what is it supposed to do? In New Testament, right here, right now, what should I be looking for prophecy to do? And I want you to look at verse 3 in chapter 14 to figure that out. He says, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. So that's what prophecy does. That's the first part of what prophecy does. It strengthens people, it encourages people, and it consoles them. So consolation, it just means comfort and disappointment. So prophecy, if it's doing what it's supposed to, strengthens, encourages, and consoles. I'm going to tell you three stories of what this looks like. So like two months ago, time doesn't exist for me because I don't sleep normally. Um, I'm going to keep using that excuse, so I'll get used to it. Uh, 
three or four weeks ago at Monday morning prayer, uh, I was sitting there praying, and I think it was Nick. He said, I'm going to give all of you just 10 minutes to pray by yourself and, you know, pray whatever you want to, sit in silence, whatever it is. And I sat there, and I said, God, I want to pray for, for my staff, but I want to know from you, like, what does my staff need to hear? Or are there people on my staff team that need to hear something specific? And one of the staffers came up, and, and it was Stephen, and he's just amazing. God gave me um, just something to pray over him. And then it was Haley, who was standing here. And guys, when I began to pray for Haley, I got this image in my mind of this, this crazy, huge, golden mansion, right? And this dude, who seemed really warm and inviting, I couldn't really see his face, but he was beckoning someone to come in to the mansion. And that someone was actually sitting in what looked like the rain in a cardboard box, and as I kept praying, it was actually Haley sitting in the cardboard box. And this person was beckoning her, like, you belong in here. You should come in here. This place is for you. But for some reason, Haley just stayed in the cardboard box in the raid. And you're like, you're crazy. I know. And so I really, though, felt like I needed to tell Haley this. So I grabbed her before a staff meeting, and I was like, hey, this is kind of weird, but I was praying for you, which is like a Christian thing to do, so you'll probably be okay with this. Um, but... I was praying for you, Haley, and I got this image, and I explained it to her, just like I explained it to you. And she looks at me, and she goes, wow. And I'm like, okay, like, that's a good start. She said, all last week, I kept listening to that song, Who You Say I Am, and every time the line, uh, in my father's house, there's a place for me, came up, I would repeat the song and listen to that line over and over and over and over again because I really struggle to believe that I have a place in God's house. That's amazing, right? That is God speaking through one person to one of his other children to say, I love you, I wanna strengthen you, I wanna encourage you in your faith. Example number two. So we had twins, we've all talked about it. One of them was born at 9.40 p.m., right? The other one was not born until 11 p.m., and that is not a good thing. That means something went wrong, and it did. Things uh, seemed to really go wrong, um, but what was amazing is the anesthesiologist in the room started praying over my wife. I was praying for my wife, and even a nurse was praying for my wife. But right around like 10.55, the doctor said, okay, Lisa, look, we have two shots at this, and we're going to use a vacuum. I'm not going to tell you the details, but they use vacuums to get kids out sometimes when things are bad. Yep, good luck, ladies. I'm praying for you. Um, <laughs> oh, seriously. But the doctor's like... The doctor was like, things are not looking good. I really don't think this is going to work. But if it does, this is the last shot. Otherwise, we're going to have to do an emergency C-section, and I don't know how that's going to go. So by God's grace, 11 p.m., Benjamin comes out. He's totally fine, happy, uh, awesome little boy. The next day, Lissa looked at her phone, and she had a text message from Sarah Herring. Sarah Herring said, Lissa, I don't know why, but 11 p.m. last night, the Holy Spirit woke me up, told me to pray for you and one of your sons because something needed to happen. And so I prayed for you. And so when Sarah told Lisa that in person, then later they both cried in my kitchen after she brought us a meal. Why? Because God was prophetically speaking through one of his people to another to strengthen them. Because what God then was telling Lisa was, I was there and I was working for you and I love you. Okay, last story, story number three. My dad grew up in a really horrible environment. Terrible, terrible, terrible environment. He loves Jesus. He's an awesome man of God. But he's carried the weight of what he grew up experiencing, the abuse, all these things, for his whole life. And it's really hurt him and caused a lot of problems for him. 
And he's always felt as though he was unloved by God because of the way he grew up. And recently, um, he was at a church service back home. And that day, he wasn't going to go to church because he had to work or something like that. But he really sensed that he was supposed to go to church. So he went. And right at the end of the service, the pastor goes, this is really weird. But I feel like there's a man in this room who does not believe he belongs in the house of God and doubts that he's loved as a son, and today God wants to free you. My dad chickened out and drove home. (laughs) But he was so sure that that word was for him that he drove back to catch the last service, ran down to tell the pastor that that was for him. They went back to his office, and for the first time in my father's life, he told someone who wasn't family everything that had happened to him and has now on a journey of healing. All three of those stories were stories where God was using his people to strengthen, encourage, and console, to prophesy, right? But these three things also then help us discern what it doesn't do, okay? Prophecy never discourages you or shames you. That's really important, okay? If someone comes to you and says, hey, I know this is weird, but I think I just want to tell you this, and it discourages you, like outright just tells you, like, you're garbage, you stink, you failed, you blew it, that is not of God. So prophecy does not discourage or shame. It also does not weaken you. If you hear something that actually makes you less strengthened or feels weakened or discarded, that's not prophecy. And then lastly, it does not wound It should not wound you. It might convict you. We'll get to that in a second, but it should not wound you. And it's important to know that so we can begin to discern what prophecy is and isn't. Okay, the thing I just kind of alluded to. See, the other thing prophecy does is it convicts people of sin. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25, it says, If all are prophesying and an unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Okay, so I have a friend who pastors a church in Long Beach, California, and his church has this ministry called Laundry Love, where they just go to a local laundromat where they know a lot of low socioeconomic income, like families go to do their laundry, and they pay for them for like three hours. It's an awesome idea. And then they begin to strike up conversations with the people that they're paying for their laundry to be done. And he was there one night, and a lady was especially antagonistic towards them. Like, you're just doing this to feel better about yourself. Why are you Christians here? Really in his face and really angry. And as he's sitting there wondering, like, how can I talk to this lady? God, would you please help me? He got the weirdest sense that she had been abused as a child and no one believed her. And that, if you're wrong, is a really bad thing to say to a stranger, right? That's a really dangerous thing to say to a stranger. But he said, hey, I know this might be strange, but were you hurt as a child and no one believed you? And she fell on her face and began to sob. And he told her, God believes you, God sees you, and Jesus wants to heal you. And she accepted Christ and now still goes to his church, right? She was convicted of her sin. She was like it was exposed before her. He was then able to share the gospel with her. And now she goes to his church and follows Jesus. That is what prophecy can do. 
And so now that we know what it does, we need to ask, how do we do it? Because if you're like me, you hear these stories, you're like, yes, I'm in. I want to do that. And we have to, to know how to do it and the right way to do it so that we can do it in a way that does what it's supposed to do. So there's some practical do's and don'ts in here. But the first place we have to start is with our hearts or our motivation. Why are we doing it? See, in verse 26, Paul said, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Paul was writing to a church who, when they gathered, everybody had something to say, remember? And all of them, they wanted to say it. They wanted to sing it. They wanted to interpret it. Like Everybody had something to say. And because the Corinthians were arrogant and prideful, he adds this little line, everything is to be done for building up. I believe he was talking to a group of people who were not trying to build up the church, but were just trying to show themselves off. Like, look what I can do. But here's what the Corinthian church got right, is they came looking to at least do something and participate, right? They at least came wanting to participate. Even if their motives were pretty off, they at least came wanting to do the things the Spirit does. And what they definitely got wrong is that they came trying to elevate themselves. They were using the gifts for their own gain, not for the good of the church. And that's why Paul says everything is to be done for building up. So what about us? When we come to small group, when we gather with our Christian friends, and when we come here on Thursday nights or Sunday mornings, what do we come to do? And I asked this question last week. It was this. Do you come to consume or do you come to participate and give? You see, and so when it comes to our attitudes and how we see the things the Spirit does, we have to do one thing first. It's reject the attitude of consumption. Because as I was as thinking about this, this kind of startling thought grabbed me. The issue with most evangelical churches is it's just a crowd of people. Crowds gather to do things like go to movies or concerts, right? Is that really what all of this is supposed to be, is a crowd gathering to consume something that they get from a stage? No. We're meant to be a church who comes to strengthen, encourage, console, and build up the outpost of the kingdom so that it can shine like stars in a dark sky. That's what it's supposed to do. We're not here just to consume an experience like any other crowd. We're supposed to be here to live as a family on the front line of a war against the kingdom of darkness. That's what we're supposed to be. And so that's how we have to come, rejecting consumption. Don't come just so you can listen to me talk and sing a few songs. Come so that you can look around and say, God, who do you want me to talk to tonight? Who can I pray for? What, what can I do to encourage this place? And I'm not just talking about serving in Candeo Kids. I think the Spirit wants to do way more than that. Then there's the, the other thing we have to do is not use then the positions and the gifts we have for our own validation or exaltation. And it starts with a heart of humility. And fair warning, I'm gonna use a really weird part of this text to prove this point, but if you stay with me, I think we might get there. We'll see. The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Jeepers. Uh, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands ah, at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Oh, my gosh. 
But that's the beauty of what happens when you walk through a text verse by verse is you are confronted with things that God has written and you cannot just dismiss them. You have to face them, right? And I want to address the controversy of what I just read and then see the application of what I think is there instead, okay? So this is one of the most controversial passages in Scripture. So if you think I'm about to answer it, you are not going to be very happy, okay? Because if you just Google what does this mean, you'll get 10 different people's opinions, like literally right off the page. People have interpreted this thing 10 different ways. But we have to at least ask the obvious. Is Paul saying what it seems like he's saying? And there is one view we would totally reject, that women can't talk at all in church. That's just not true. And even Paul would actually affirm that. In, in chapter 11, he's, he's assuming women would prophesy and pray in church. He just wanted them to do it a certain way, if you remember. So we would never affirm a church that would say women can do nothing and they need to be quiet. In fact, we would rebuke that church and tell you to leave it as quickly as possible. But we are reading someone's else, someone else's mail, so we don't fully understand the context of what was happening. But we also have to remember, too, that women were second-class citizens. So even the idea that they were allowed in a gathering was a step in the right direction. And a lot of them did not have the education that their husbands would have had. So they were maybe asking either innocent questions, wondering what is he talking about when he prophesies, or there's this idea that some women were talking to men who weren't their husbands, which is like the equivalent of showing your ankles in the 1900s or something like that, right? And going to men who weren't their husbands seeking their leadership when that was a kind of a direct, like, point of uh, conflict and not submitting to your own husband. There's all kinds of things that we could do to try to understand this. What I actually want us to focus on is that he uses the word silence because this is actually the third time he uses that word in this passage. He's actually directing the church or at least parts of the church, people in the church to be silent to some degree. And I think it's because he wanted them to be confronted with the fact that they were using the things of the Spirit, and the gathered church to validate themselves or their own opinions or their own spirituality and not to build up the church or love others. See, I think in his call to silence, he's actually calling for humility because the most mature people in the church are the ones who don't need attention or the spotlight. The most mature people in the church are the ones who don't have to be the center of attention or seek outward validation. They don't have to do something to feel loved or accepted, or they don't have to have all eyes on them in order to feel like they matter. But a lot of us struggle with that, right? The things we do outwardly, we seem to validate us inwardly. And can we all just agree that it's actually a really crummy way to live? That if we continue to validate ourselves by what we do, we will constantly be exhausted and disappointed? Because if life's all about what you do, then you have to keep finding new things that people like and either getting proficient at them, showing them off, or then you get rejected. So again, like I did last week, I would actually call us to find our validation from Jesus because Jesus validates us by what he did, not by what we do. And Jesus validates us by what he says, not what others say. And what he did was live the life we could never live and die the death we deserved to die and then rose again so we would never really taste what we deserved. And then he says, you're always a son or a daughter no matter what you do, which is a place that we should all find our validation. And when we sit in that place and find our validation in that way, we will then be able to express the gift of prophecy for the right reasons. But to be safe, because Paul knows we're human, he still gives some like constraints or ways to understand like, is this a good prophecy or not? So I'm gonna kind of go through some helpful filters for prophecy tonight really quick. 
The first one is scripture, okay? I said it earlier. If someone ever comes to you and says, hey, I think I have a prophetic word for you, and it's totally against scripture, say, no, you don't. I'll see you later, right? Maybe do it more gently, but um, just tell them, nope, you don't. See, verse 36, it says, or did the word of God originate from you? He's calling out, like, where is your authority? Did you write the word of God? Did it come to you only? So filter the prophecy you either feel led to speak or that you receive through scripture. If it contradicts scripture, you need to throw it away. If it tells you to do something that would disobey what scripture says, you need to throw it away. If you think you're supposed to tell someone something that's definitely not in the Bible, just don't say it. It's not helpful. And this is good for us because it anchors what we say in truth and it removes the authority from being in the person's experience, right? We are in a culture that overvalues our experiences and feelings. Well, if I feel like it's true, then it must be true. Well, that's just how I feel or that's how I experience it, so it must be valid. But if what you're feeling or what someone says they're feeling, uh, if any of those things end up in something you say that doesn't fall in line with Scripture, then maybe it was just the salad you had earlier that day, right? And you need to let it go. So an example of this is a friend of mine was in a prayer meeting and a girl walked up to him and said, hey, I think I have a word. And he goes, okay. And she goes, just kept nodding at him. I'm serious, like just kept nodding. I'm not waiting for a dramatic effect. Just kept nodding. And he goes, okay, like what is it? And she goes, wife. And he goes, oh no, like what? Like you and me? And she goes, yep, yep. I think I'm supposed to be your wife. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, talk about sweaty. Like, that's a dangerous game. And so, in that moment, he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, and are you sure? Like, and, and I love him. He's amazing. But he worries a lot. And so this is a really bad thing for him to hear because he didn't even really know this girl. And so what you have to do is like, okay, what would Scripture say? Well, it says, husband, love your wives. Well, I don't even love her. Okay, throw it out. Boom, you're done, right? But she was so sure that what she was experiencing was true that she walked up to him and said, wife, right? That is, mm-mm, okay, mm-mm. If any of you dudes walk up to any of these girls and go, husband, I'm gonna slap you. And girls, don't go up to any of these guys and go, wife, like that is a bad deal, okay? That was what you ate at Piazza, that was not Jesus, okay? No, 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 not good. And that's a funny example, but there have been a lot of things that are bad that have happened. I know a pastor who was at a, at a teaching where this guy who claimed to be a prophet was talking, and he went up to this, this pastor and his wife, and he goes, your husband, he hurts you, doesn't he? In the, in the middle, this dude's an elder at this church, awesome dude, and this random guy he doesn't know looks at his wife and goes, this man, he hurts you, doesn't he? In an instant, his reputation could be worried. By the grace of God, he got in the car and his wife looked at him and said, what was that? <laughs> no way. But do you see how dangerous that could be? That if you don't filter it through something that's more true than what you're saying, you can do a lot of harm. And so here's a few things that I, I want you to, to take with you as you begin to practice prophecy. No mates and no dates. Never tell anyone husband or wife and never give them specific dates for when things are gonna happen. No mates, no dates. Just helpful. Okay, the second thing that I want you to do is deliver it in a pressure-free way that makes room for them to reject it or let it go. Don't make them feel like they have to say, okay, thank you, Lord, and then walk away from you, okay? Say, hey, you can totally let this go. This is not meant to be something that you take like overly seriously, but I just wanna encourage you, here's this thing, and you say it. 
And so here's a really helpful thing. Never, ever, ever say, God told me. Never, ever, ever say that. Don't ever tell someone, hey, God told me to tell you. God told me to tell you. That is so dangerous. Because then what you do to them is walk away. And if they have any shred of doubt, they'll begin to think they're doubting God himself. And God does not put that kind of pressure on people. So please don't ever say, God told me. So scripture, and then a few pastoral uh, things there. The second thing you should filter it through is community. Verse 29 says, two or three prophets should speak, and then the others should evaluate. So if you receive a prophetic word from someone, do not just keep it to yourself. Find people that you trust who have the Holy Spirit and say, what do you think about this? You know me. This is what they said. What do you think? We're supposed to live in community, and especially hearing things like that should be done in community. Okay, then lastly, uh, there's this, this way it functions, okay? So how you give a prophetic word. So he says, I should have put the verse down, but I forgot. It says, and the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So he says, As the, and the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder or of peace. What is he saying? Okay, what he literally means is when you get a prophetic word, you're not possessed, okay? You don't go into a trance or do some weird ritual dance and then suddenly speak, okay? It's none of that. God does not reach inside of you like a ventriloquist dummy and say, wife, okay? Like that's not <laughs> how it works, right? But I think a lot of us, we hear prophecy, we hear, oh my gosh, God's speaking to me. We think it must involve goosebumps, a trance, or something incredible. And what I would actually tell you is it's far more natural, but still very supernatural, God will likely talk to you in a way that you will know it's him. If you're a really visual person, he might like, I'm a feeler, I'm a visual guy. Uh, that's why God gave me that picture for Haley. It just made sense to me so I could communicate it to her. Other people who really know God's word, very intellectual, he might give you a scripture for someone. Like he's not gonna like throw you a curveball that's so crazy. You're like, I don't know, was that God or the pasta? I, like, I don't know what to do. Like he will speak to you in a way that makes sense and is not weird. It's actually really ordinary. Okay, and then the other thing this means though is you cannot prophesy on command. God is not your Holy Spirit vending machine that when you feel like prophesying, you can just do it. The scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You can't catch the wind in your hands. He moves as he pleases. Uh, Jake Herring, the teaching pastor here, he had this awesome analogy. He said, prophecy is like lightning. We can know how lightning works, but we really can't ever predict when or where it will strike. We can absolutely know how it works, but we can't predict when or where it will strike. And I think that's true. We can't tell God when to work for us. But, Salt Company, we can put ourselves in a position to receive prophetic words for other people. And that's how I kind of want to end tonight. So the first thing I would tell you is what I told you last week is cultivate an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Because if you don't know his voice, you won't know when he's talking, right? If I am standing in the Candeo Kids hallway and I yell out my kids' names, other kids won't come running to me, Finley and Auden will, because they know my voice. So we need to cultivate lives that know God's voice, and we do that through intimacy. 
the next thing we need to do is put ourselves in position to listen. To listen. All I did that day at Monday morning prayer was say, God, I want to pray for my friends. What would you have to say? And I've prayed that a lot, and sometimes nothing happens. And so I just pray what I know is in God's word, which is also really good for them. But every once in a while, and more often than not, he'll give me something. He'll show me something. And then lastly, um, and this is the hardest one, is you have to say it, right? Uh, A friend of mine says, faith is actually spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled risk, for those of you who don't spell. Um, (laughs) But Haley could have looked at me and been like, that's great, crazy, and then gone, I work for this guy? Oh my gosh, right? And she didn't. But, But to step out and say it. To step out and say it. Those are the ways we cultivate it. And then in verse 39, he says this, So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. And it's that last part that I want to talk about. Because in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, Don't extinguish the Spirit. And see, what I think is true is predictability and order is not our issue. We walk in, we get greeted, we sing our song, we do our welcome time, we do one more song, Michael teaches a few more songs, and then I go. Order is not the place we err. I believe extinguishing the spirit is the side that we err on. And I think the way that we push against that is to come in not consuming, but participating. Not saying, what do I get out of it, but what can I give to it? If you want to live a naturally supernatural life where you see and watch as God moves through you, then the orientation of your life should not be, God, what can you give me? But God, what can I give you? God, what would you do with a life that would be used? And then the scariest part for all of us is you have to go out and do it. You have to go out and do it. But I'm telling you, the, the, the life that we read in the passages of Scripture is not just something for them back then, but I think a lot of us think that that's true. And what I'm not telling you is that you can live this life of constantly extraordinary experiences, but you can live a life that is absolutely and deeply in intimate relationship with the living God. And when you are in that deep and intimate relationship, he will take you along and do the things he's doing, and you will see the pages of Scripture come to life as you watch people come to life. Who would not want that? Who would not want that? And so as we close 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I don't want it to be the last time you ask God for the gift of tongues or for the ability to prophesy. I actually want it to be just the beginning. And my heart, my desire, is that what I've seen actually over the last month and a half happen is Guys, there are a lot of times where we say goodbye and I awkwardly dismiss you because I don't know how to do that well, and none of you leave. In In fact, many of you stay and you gather together and you begin to cry and pray, and I'm telling you, you're starting to do it. This place is becoming a place that's not just a room where everyone comes to consume, but it's a family who comes to strengthen and live. 
We've got to treat gatherings like this as opportunities to say the mundane way of life that I've lived until I came into this room is not real life. But we need to come into this room and remind each other that we have been brought into a kingdom that is not for us someday, but is absolutely alive and active right now. Jesus Christ told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He said, on earth as it is in heaven. He told us that he wanted God's will to be done on earth and that it wasn't yet. And he's not looking at people who have it all together to bring the kingdom to earth. He's looking at you, broken and messed up you, and he's saying, do you want to be a part of the kingdom crashing in to the broken earth right now? He does not need to wait until he brings eternity to us for eternity to break out here. He's just looking for people who are willing to say the mundane life that I'm living is not the real life that I've been given, but the one empowered by the spirit of the living God is the life I want to live. And yes, it will look ordinary. And yes, you will blow it, but you have been made and then remade by the king of the universe. And he is telling you that there is a spirit that is his spirit, he himself dwelling in you. And you can turn to the person next to you and say something to them that could matter into eternity because that's what prophecy does. Do you realize that? Prophecy is words that won't just matter in a week, they'll matter in a millennia. They are words that when spoken to someone can carry them into the life to come and help them live that life right now. That is what you are being invited into. That is Christianity, not a nice place I go where I die, but a life where the kingdom breaks out now. And Jesus wants to know, can he have your life? Will you be intimate with him? Will you let culture know that it does not have a hold on you? Will you remind Satan that the lies that the people around you believe are not the ones you believe? Will you give up things that culture says are normal? Will you let your life be transformed and holy? And I believe some of you and many of you, you hear it and you think that's not for me and that's not true. But like a beautiful sound you hear in a room, you need to rearrange the furniture of your life so the kingdom of God's music gets louder and louder and louder and louder so that when people get invited into your life, they go, what is that noise? And you go, it's the son of God. And they begin to rearrange their lives to hear it also. So tonight, Jesus is saying, can I have your life? And what he means is, will you be in relationship with me? And can I show you the wonders of the life to come right now? And so that's what we're going to do is we're going to say yes, Jesus. We're going to say yes. And so I want you, as the band will eventually make its way up, to tell Satan to take a flying leap. Because tonight, Jesus is going to speak. Because tonight, Jesus wants to give you a prophetic word. Tonight, Jesus might want to give you the gift of tongues. Tonight, Jesus might just want to remind you that he doesn't just love you, he likes you. But he's also saying, I have more for you. Do you want it? I have more for you. Do you want it? Let's ask him to come. I want it. I want it, Jesus. I'm serious. You can have everything. You can rearrange anything in my life. You can take anything away because the closer and closer I get to you, the, the smaller and dimmer the things of this world become. And so what I want to tell you is I'm still prone, though, to appetites for lesser things. Would you change my appetites? And what I want to tell you is I live like 
what you have for me is someday and not right now, but I want to live like it's right now. And I don't want to prophesy so that people think I'm impressive. I want to prophesy because someone in this room needs to hear your voice so that they can be with me in, in a millennia. I want to say things to people that actually carry into eternity, not just linger for a week or two. Jesus, we don't want the things you do. We want you. We want you. And so would we have you? And then would we do the things that you do? Would we live the life that you call us to live? Please, Jesus, bring that to us. You are, you are here. I sense it. I'm going to speak it. You are here. Would you give people in this room prophetic words for other people in this room? Would you give them the gift of tongues? Would you empower them by the Holy Spirit? Would you remind them of their identity? Spirit, we are at your disposal. Do what you want to do. We are at your disposal. Do what you want to do.